The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the August podcast. This month, a new study by researchers linking body mass to cancer. The higher people's body mass index was, the greater their cancer risk. How a school-run workshop in Ethiopia is helping to map neglected tropical disease. Having this skill will definitely help them to use a recent development in geographical information system, which really helps in targeting intervention and monitoring progress. And a new study that looks into the sexual habits of 16 to 18-year-olds. The paper that's just coming out now is about anal sex. People seem to consider it normal that women would find anal sex very painful. There was a sense among the men that it was a a box to tick. In a new study investigating the association between body mass index and cancers, researchers at the school used GP records for over 5 million people to look at how BMI affects risk of a wide range of the commonest cancers in much greater detail than has been possible before. Dr Krishnan Baskaran told us more about the study. We knew from various smaller studies over the last uh, few years and decades that there are these important apparent relationships between the amount of body weight that people are carrying and their later cancer risk. And what we really wanted to know from this study was to take a broad look over a comprehensive range of common cancers and see what the size of these effects were, how they affect different cancers in different ways, and what the ultimate impacts on population statistics of cancer are. So how much cancer is potentially caused by excess body weight. How much were we really sure about the links between cancer and body weight? It's something that people maybe don't think so much about. Yes, I mean, a lot more attention, I think, is given to the effects of um, excess weight on things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But people don't really think so much about cancer. That's not to say there hasn't been research on this. And I think it was fairly established that there was a relationship but in many ways, the size of the, and, and the importance of these effects has not been quantified to the same level as we have for cardiovascular disease, for example. So what did you do in this paper to try and figure out and tease apart some of this, uh, some of this complex relationship? So this was a, a very large study. We were able to include data from over 5 million people. And the way that we did that was to access anonymised GP records from across the country. And we collated the height and weight measurements that have just been made in regular GP consultations as part of routine care. And we also looked forward in those anonymised records to see uh, later on whether there were any diagnoses of cancer in the same people. What sort of timescale are we talking from from those measurements being made to then a a diagnosis of cancer? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? Well, it varied, but the the data source that we had access to, the, the earliest kind of records from that were in the late 80s, early 90s. So for some people, we had about 20 years of follow-up and obviously for others where they registered with their GP more recently, we had less follow-up. So on average, we had, I think, six or seven years of follow-up for most for the average person in the study. So it sounds like you're taking the, this information about height and weight and you can convert that to, to BMI and then go, well, did they get cancer? How do you actually go about proving whether there is a link? And is it for all types of cancer, some types of cancer? Yeah, well, so far, it's, that was the simple version. And of course, we have to take into account other things that might be common causes of having a high BMI and later on getting cancer. So this is where we do our statistical modelling and try to use other, other information we have from the record to discount the effects of other common causes like socioeconomic 
status, smoking habits, drinking, these things can, could all affect both cancer risk and BMI. So they could lead to a spurious association. So we try to collate all the information on those factors and include them in our modelling so that we really had what we thought was the, the real effect of body mass index. So, so what do you find from the data? We confirmed that, that as we thought, there were, there were important relationships between body mass index and cancer risk. And what was quite striking, because this was a broad study, and I think the first time in a single data set where we've looked across so many cancers, we looked at 22 of the commonest cancers, and it was quite striking the variation in effects, actually. So for the majority of cancers, there was an association. And for 10 cancers, there was a, a very clear positive correlation. So the higher people's body mass index was, the greater their cancer risk seemed to be. And for others, there was, for a few cancers, there was very little effect. For some, there was even apparently lower rates of cancer among those with the higher body mass index, but that was the, mon- the minority. And, you know, those are the slightly more surprising results. But again, they are consistent with uh, what has been shown before. Which cancers are we talking about here that are most strongly linked to obesity? In terms of what are the impacts on the population, one has to also think about uh, which, how common these cancers are. So it's a slightly different answer if you're saying which of these cancers are worst affected at a population level. The specific cancer type that really had the most striking positive relationship with body mass index was cancer of the uterus in women. That's womb cancer, which is actually the fourth most common cancer in women. And for cancer of the uterus, we found that increasing the body mass index by five units, which is for an average height woman would be adding about two stones of weight, actually increased the risk of uterus cancer by over 60%. So really quite a large effect. Although broadly it's a less common cancer, so your risk is lower generally in population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So obviously the most common cancer in women is breast cancer, and breast cancer has a a smaller relative effect or association with body mass index. But I think the actual number of cases of breast cancer that we've estimated that would be attributable to excess weight is larger than for, for womb cancer because it's the function of these two things, how large the effect is and how common the cancer is. How many cases of cancer are we talking about? That's something we tried to estimate in this study um, by using both the, the national cancer statistics and also the effects that we estimated for body mass index. We estimated for the 10 cancers that were really clearly positively associated with body mass index, over 12,000 could be attributable to having excess weight. Um, Is that every year in the UK? And that's every year, yeah. So that's, that's uh, if you like... If we could somehow magically remove all excess weight from the population, we would expect from these results to prevent about 12,000 cancer cases. So it's really quite a large population impact. We hear a lot about the risks of of smoking and drinking excessive alcohol and everyone's very obsessed with uh, diet and what to eat. Just simply overweight and obesity as a factor doesn't seem to be getting through. No, it's particularly not in terms of cancer risk. I think that, you know, there is a general awareness that we have this, you know, so-called obesity crisis, and it's a very intractable problem. But the the specific effect on cancer risks really haven't come across. And in many ways, it's because we haven't had a broad study that's really looked across uh, at the population impacts before. So with this study, you kind of feel that this is the strong evidence that we can go out there and say, you know, we, we really know this now. Yes, I think so. I think this really sort of seals it. So we already knew there were these important effects, but now we've really put some more meat on it and uh, worked out exactly what the impacts are. And it really just adds ever more to the case uh, for some ambitious policies to deal with obesity in the population, which we know are affecting cardiovascular risk. We know they're affecting diabetes risk. And now we really know the extent to which they're affecting cancer risk as well. So adding to the weight of evidence. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
That was Dr. Krishnan Baskaran. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. The fight against neglected tropical diseases, or NTDs, has become increasingly important in the post-millennium development goals era. Of the 17 NTDs, 10 have been targeted for control or elimination by 2020. But in order to eliminate them, researchers must first map them and understand how they spread. Kabida Dariba, a former student of the school and now based in Ethiopia, is currently mapping an NTD called podokinesis, and he helped facilitate a week-long training course in Addis Ababa run by the school. The workshops, called Modern Tools for NTD Control Programs, introduced new geographic information systems and techniques to researchers so that they can understand where new NTDs are occurring in the region. Kabida told us more about his work and the course. Neglected tropical diseases are a group of diseases which are uh, neglected and mostly affect a bottom billion of the world. WHO considers around uh, 17 uh, diseases as neglected tropical diseases as well as some four additional uh, other uh, conditions to be included in it. So podoconiasis is a type of elephantiasis which usually occur among, among barefooted individuals who uh, usually work on red clay soil for a long uh, period of time. So these uh, small particles from the soil penetrate the skin and cause irritation of the lymphatic system and uh, cause uh, bilateral swelling of the lower leg. And it is a very stigmatizing disease. It, uh, it is also, you know, uh, there is genetic susceptibility among certain families. So because of that, there is a wide misconception among the community. So in Ethiopia, we do uh, estimate that there are one million cases. And these people are uh, economically, uh, they are not productive because of the condition. They are uh, highly stigmatized. They are also outcasted from the community because of their illness. Our plan is to understand the distribution and you know provide service for these individuals. Great. And does podoconiosis happen anywhere else in the world? Yeah, historically the podoconiosis has been reported among like 25 countries, mainly in tropical African countries, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. So in, in, in Africa it commonly occurs in Ethiopia, in Cameroon, Burundi, Rwanda, Kenya and Tanzania. And uh, in Latin America, like countries like Brazil and so on, has been historically reported. From Asia, India and Sri Lanka has reported the disease historically. Can you speak a little bit about the other people taking this course, um, what, what their jobs are, and do you know what kind of di- what diseases they work on? Yeah, but uh, individuals involved in this training are either from a research institute or from uh, regional health bureaus or from universities. Most of them are working in neglected tropical diseases, so like such as uh, uh, schistosomiasis, soil transmitted helminths, trachoma, leishmaniasis. How do you think this course will benefit yourself and the others taking the course um, and also the communities? 
Yeah, this is a very important course because uh, first, uh, you know, these skills are lacking in Ethiopia. Uh, program planners are using usually uh, handmade cartographic maps for understanding the distribution of disease, also to map health facilities and other activities. But having this skill will definitely help them to, uh, you know, use a recent development in geographical information system and develop maps which really helps in targeting intervention and, and also helps in uh, monitoring progress. So uh, I think through the discussion I had with some of them, they are really happy about the training and they are planning to use it in uh, you know, mapping div different types of diseases as well as uh, uh, services which are available to the community. So if they do understand you know, the distribution of the disease, those most at risk will be benefited from the treatment service and from the mapping activity. So these courses will be very beneficial. For myself as a person who is involved in mapping podoconiasis, and this is really helpful for me to uh, further analyze my data and also understand the distribution of the disease. During the course, what are the benefits of GIS were discussed, also the, the different sources of data, particularly the environmental variables and other important variables, sources were identified and discussed. Uh, the quality of data and um, data management has been also discussed because there are different surveys being conducted in Ethiopia and understanding how to monitor the quality of the uh, data and also how to manage the collected data is a very important thing and this has, has been already covered during the course. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the mapping of entities in Ethiopia as in when was the last mapping campaign for example? Or this is a very a high moment for uh, NTDs in Ethiopia because the government has given a due emphasis for uh, prevention and control as well as elimination of NTD. The national master plan of NTD was launched in May 2013 and most of the mapping of NTDs has been completed the last year. And this, is the, this course came in a very critical time because we really needed to have a skill on analyzing the data and developing map. And this is a very appropriate time for us to have this skill. Both at regional, national level uh, individuals really are involved in mapping and they need to understand what the maps are telling. And this is a very critical time and I think the course uh, really helped uh, and it will be a very good input towards the elimination of NTD in Ethiopia. That was Kabida Dariba. In a new study looking at the sex lives of 16 to 18-year-olds, researchers at the school interviewed 130 men and women aged 16 to 18 from across England to understand more about the circumstances around anal intercourse and any implications these might have for health. Study author Dr Cicely Marston, who leads the 1618 project at the school, told us more. So we had a, a total of 130 young people in our study altogether, and that was in a mixture of one-to-one -one interviews, and um, we also did group interviews. We worked in London and a city in the north of England, and also in a rural area in the southwest. I mean, we were just trying to get as, as big a diversity as possible within England. So the, the paper that's just coming out now is about anal sex. And the reason that we looked at anal sex was because, well, obviously it's asexual practice, but we had noticed in the first set of interviews that a lot of the young people were reporting either having had anal sex or attempting 
or just generally talking about it. And so... Is that un- unprompted? Yes. Uh, we had tried to be as open as possible about what was a sexual practice. So we didn't want to impose on them what we thought a sexual practice was. And so we kind of left it very open and we asked them what they considered to be sexual and whether they had engaged in anything that they would consider to be sexual and so on. And so that was the context in which anal sex or anal practices had been raised. Basically, we found that there was a, quite a, an oppressive environment being described where it seemed quite normal that... or People can, seemed to consider it normal that women would find anal sex very painful for a start. So that was a kind of a, a thing that everyone talked about, that women would find it painful. And then the other thing that was talked about a lot was the idea that... This idea that you would need to kind of push a woman into having anal sex. And so the idea of you know, asking over and over and over and over again until she said yes. Or in some cases where... They, had, they were actually having vaginal intercourse and then the, the man had slipped and they had been penetrated anally in that way. And so they described it in that way. They described it as a slip. And so there were obviously certain... In those cases, the women hadn't been able to give consent because they didn't even know that it was about to happen. So there was a kind of a, just an overall sense of, of anal sex being something that was, that was for the benefit of the men only, that the women... There was also something that they talked about, which was this idea that if you're, if you're used to it, then it's something that women might like. And so there was another sense that where the women did find it painful, that it was their fault, that it was because they were naive, they were not relaxed enough, that they were, that they were sort of just not sexually mature enough in some way. So there was this kind of... There was this constant thing about very little talk of mutual enjoyment or mutually deciding whether or not to engage in anal practices. There was one woman that we interviewed who, who described enjoying anal sex. So it wasn't the case that, that women just didn't like it, but she was the only one. There was, there was a sense among the men that it was a kind of, you know, it was a sort of a, a box to tick, as it were, you know, that it was a, like another practice to kind of tick off the list that they might do even if they didn't really feel like doing it. Um, but actually, quite a few of the men, when we asked them about the physical pleasure they had felt or not felt during anal sex, they didn't always say it straight away, but often, as, you know, as the conversation developed, they would talk about not really enjoying it physically very much. And so there wasn't really a sense of anyone actually enjoying it that much. <laughs> it seems that there is, there's pressure, on, on the, obviously, on the women, but also some kind of cultural pressure on the men. You talked about ticking boxes. Is, mm. is, have we seen a, a shift in our cultural attitudes to this, to anal sex, over the last generation, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, don't, I can't tell you what, whether or not it was something that was more acceptable or less acceptable in the past. I mean, certainly the um, recent National Survey on Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles has reported an increase in, in people report, young people reporting having had anal sex in the, in the previous year, so it might be that it is becoming more popular. And what about the public health implications? Well, for me, the main public health implications of the work that this, uh, the work on anal sex, are to do with the coercive element of anal sex and the fact that it seems that there isn't really any discussion of women's desires or pleasure or uh, even their rights to bodily integrity in in terms of the ways that the anal sex is being discussed. I mean, we it, it seemed that a lot of the men were discussing the women pretty much as a collection of holes to be penetrated. And that obviously has major public health implications. If the women themselves are being penetrated without their consent, for instance, or if they're, if they're 
giving consent um, on the understanding that they have a particular relationship when they don't or whatever. I mean, the the mental health implications are uh, one aspect of it, and also obviously there are there are po- there is the possibility of um, transmission of sexually transmitted infections through anal sex as well. As well. So, you know, clearly if there's more anal sex going on, then there's more possibility for for unprotected anal sex to be a route for disease transmission. But in terms of of our, our own interpretation, I would say that the, the far more problematic is the coercive element. I suppose what, one of the things that I did find disturbing was the extent to which the, the discussions about anal sex were purely about how women would find it painful and how, uh, how it seemed to be completely normalised that women would be um, asked over and over again to, to engage in a practice that their partners thought would hurt them. So, I mean, it's one thing to think, oh, well, this could be enjoyable and we could both enjoy it and we can explore it together. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with that kind of approach. And we're certainly not saying that young people shouldn't have anal sex or anything like that. But in terms of how it, how it was done and, or how it was talked about, I think that was, that was what was kind of, well, more disappointing than, than you might hope. <laughs> I mean, we, we as a society tell young men that women are objects, that they should be having sex with as many women as possible, that, um, you know, women's looks are the most important thing and how they should be judged. And, you know, we can't expect as a society that, that men and women growing up in that kind of environment will then not take that to heart to some extent. And so, you know, if we, if we continue with these, those kind of messages, then we can't be surprised if men act accordingly and maybe treat the, treat the women as though they are objects and that they, they are just something to be penetrated and then to tell their friends about. That was Dr Cicely Marston. As always, if you want any further information about any of the features on this month's podcast or news about future events at the school, you can visit us at lshtm.ac.uk where you can also listen to longer versions of the interviews. Next month, we'll have more of the latest fascinating research and news from the school. Thanks for listening. 